0: Well, Colossians 4, verse 14, we're going to look at the contrast between two more precious people that were followers of Paul and ministered to the church. We're going to look at Luke and can contrast to a guy named Demas. Again, as we've been looking at this, this is part three of precious people. um, We've asked ourselves, what is the key that's come out about the various pastors and people involved in the ministry. They were faithful. And Paul really breaks it down in 1 Corinthians 4 two by saying that's it. When we stand before the Lord, it's not, were you reaching thousands? Were you prosperous? Were you, it's, you may have a very simple, tiny little ministry. But if you were faithful with that little, he says, I'm going to reward you to be able to rule over many cities. You took that one talent and God's going to bless you for being faithful with whatever he has in your hand. And so we asked this question a couple of times now. We're going to ask it again. What if your name was written in the Bible? What would they say about you? And of course, that can't be done because the Bible's canonized, but It would be a pretty amazing thing. And I think Paul really sums it up well in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. We read this last week. I want to read it again. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring the light, the hidden things of darkness, and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. And I love that, that Paul says, I, I can't even accurately judge myself because that's the way we are. We have a self-mechanism, protection mechanism in us that, that has mercy on us and gets upset with others. But I, I, I do know that when I stand before the Lord, it will be a true judgment, and, and in, not, not for condemnation, but for rewards or lack of rewards. He talked about that in 1 Corinthians 3. But he says, Hey, I'll I'll, I'll know at that time and you'll know at that time. So I don't really care about you judging me. The the question is at the end of times. And then we looked at a guy named Tychicus and another guy, uh, Onesimus. And then last week we we looked at um, Aristarchus and then John Mark, Justice, a guy named Jesus they call Justice, and Epaphras, this amazing man who labored night and day for prayer that they would be mature and complete in all the things of Christ, who might have been the founder of that church, Colossae, but for sure pastored there for a time. And so we all want that day when the Lord says to us, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. Well, Luke, it says here he's a beloved physician. Interesting. We never. The only place we find out that Luke is a doctor is here. Now, Luke, interesting enough, is only mentioned three times. And Demas, we're going to find out, was also mentioned three times. But Luke was the author of the Gospel of Luke, and he also wrote the book of Acts, the two largest books in the New Testament. Let me tell you how big those books are. If you took all of Paul's writings in the New Testament and added them up by words or chapters or however, the, book of, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts is far greater than all the writings of Paul. So actually, by word or by verses, Luke has more in print in the New Testament than anybody else. Interesting, he's the only Gentile That's an author of the New Testament. But it makes sense now because he's a doctor. Ah, because the thing is you study, especially looking at the words, some unique words that he uses in Luke and in Acts, they are medical terms and they're not used in the other Gospels. But then also he gets very particular on how he talks about things very specific and uses some obscure words to describe it. And so we we say, oh, that makes sense, because he's this guy who's very specific and analytical in in his writings. And of course, they were wonderful. Now, he tells us in Luke chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order the narrative of those things which have been Amongst us. There were probably many gospels uh, that people wrote, but the ones that God had in mind were Matthew, Mark, and then later, uh, much later on, John. But he says, hey, there's a number of people doing this. But then he says in Luke 1, verse 2, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Lord delivered them to us. It seems good to me also, having had a perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. Whether this is a person or just everybody, the word Theo, love, Theophilus, love, love of God, all the lovers of God, that you may know for certainty those things in which you were instructed. So he tells us, I knew all the apostles. I talked to all the apostles. I asked questions very specifically from a number of the apostles and I got a number of witnesses, and so it nailed it down. And, and so, for example, in the Gospel of Matthew, it may say there was one demon that was crying out. And then in the Gospel of Luke, it says there were two demons crying out. It's not a contradiction, because when there is one demon crying out, or when there are two demons crying out, there can also be one demon crying out, right? So it, it's just the one gospel was just saying, here's the story. And here's what's important about this story. You know, he didn't say it was raining, or there was a kid running by chasing his dog, or there's a lot of things they didn't add in. They could have added in. But um, again, Luke is is really drilling down. And so therefore, it's a very long gospel. And you'll know it when we teach it. It'll take a couple of years. Um, <laughs> it was funny, because I, I talk to pastors pretty regularly. I did just this week, who is... Was having a a Gospel of Luke blues because you you get into about chapter eight and you realize, oh my goodness, we're never going to finish this Uh, because I mean chapters are eighty verses long and it's just it's a very long gospel to teach. But nevertheless, many think that Luke actually brought the first print of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts as a document to be used at Paul's trial in Rome. And that's what he was doing there, trying to give them documentation of what had happened with this Jesus guy and Paul preaching it. Because you know, most of the book of Acts is focused on Paul and his ministry. And so uh, that would be interesting if indeed that happened. But nevertheless, we do find Luke mentioned three times, but interesting enough, it's one here in Colossians, one time in Philemon, in verse 23 and 24, it just says he greets you and he's a fellow laborer. And then the last time we have mentioned is in 2 Timothy 4. Now, the reason this is interesting, because Demas is mentioned in Colossians, He's also mentioned right next to Luke's name in Philemon. And he's also mentioned in 2 Timothy 4. So we're going to see that in a moment. But here's what it says about Luke in 2 Timothy 4.11. Only Luke is with me. This is when Paul is moments away from being put to death by Nero. And the other people have, for whatever reason, some of them were gone because Paul sent them. Paul said, go help that church in Ephesus. Go and deliver these letters there. Some of them were gone because he sent them to minister. But far as people that could have been there, evidently there were some, they didn't want to be guilty by association. It's like, yeah, let's kill Paul. And hey, you're guilty of exactly what he is. Then kill him and him and him. And it's like, ooh, no, I don't want to be around when they're dealing out the sentences there. That's the impression you get. So only Luke was with him to the end interesting well now we switch over to Demas and here it tells us Demas greet you it's interesting that we don't have anything like when Paul says like Epaphras he's this amazing guy or or Timothy or Titus Paul Paul in some of the letters goes into great detail about these guys and how they're faithful and what they did and how they encourage the church and how you can trust them with Demas we don't get any of that we just hear him greet you that's the, the best Paul can say about him. But we, we do discover here that the church must have known him. Church has some knowledge of him. So he's been around a while with Paul. And again, in Philemon, right next to the gospel of Luke, or excuse me, right next to, the, to Luke in, in Philemon 23 and 24, it says the same thing. He greets you, and he's a fellow laborer, identical to, to Luke. But now six years later, the third mention, we come to 2 Timothy 4 and listen to verse 10, quite the opposite of Luke. And Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, has departed for Thessalonica. So Demas went from being a fellow laborer (laughs) to one who turned his back on the Lord, and on the Apostle Paul. What happened? We don't know. We have three things here that it tells us about him. You know what I've always thought in my mind? That some rich uncle died or his dad died and he got this inheritance, a bunch of money. Because I have actually seen that with young people doing well, scraping to get by, they're working on their education, or they're struggling, trying to get established in their work, and then a grandpa, or an uncle, or somebody dies, and they get lots of money, and I've seen them just change in a moment, and all of a sudden, within weeks, they're doing stuff that they never would have done before, and, and, uh, They find themselves no longer with an appetite for God whatsoever. Uh, The Bible does say the love of money can can be the root of all evil. And it says that those who desire to be rich fall into many hurtful lusts. But also, it says the rich man getting to heaven is like getting a camel through the eye of a needle. It's a difficult thing to have a full wallet and a full heart. I don't know, but something happened where on a dime it appears... Demas went from being with Paul and a fellow laborer to not being with him when Paul really needed him to be there in the end. Luke was there, the only one, right to the very end. Demas was never sent out to encourage a church. Demas was never given letters to go deliver to the church. Demas was there, but it appears that he wasn't there with a a heart that Paul could trust. And we don't see Paul entrusting him into anything, but now we see something happened where he loves this present world, where he wasn't doing it outwardly anyway, in a way that could be seen, but evidently in his heart. So why do these things happen? Well, we, we see three different things here. He loved the present world, or he forsook me, he loved this present world, And he departed. So, first of all, he loved this present world. If you would, we could say backsliding. Because all of us loved the world before we became Christians. And now he went from one who was supposed to love the Lord with all his heart, mind, soul, and the strength to no longer doing that, but going back to where he once was in loving the world and the things in the world as all of us did before But again, for some, they just have that moment in time where they're just like, it's a battle. It's a battle fighting my flesh. It's a battle fighting the world system. It's a battle fighting the devil. And if I could just go to the college campus and all the liberal kids are into all these, and they're saying this, rather than it grieving me and me having to resist all this liberalism on the college campus if i can just go and agree with all of them and be in unison with all of them and be invited to their parties and invited to do stuff with them and be one of them oh, i have such a peace about that i have such a peace about no longer swimming upstream and fighting a battle that i don't really want to fight and i'm getting tired of fighting There's an immediate grasp, an immediate pleasure, an immediate relief of going back to living in the world, loving this present world as we once did. Because Christianity, we're told over and over again, does not pay off now. Naked we came in this world and what? Naked we go out. This world at its best is fleeting. At best, it's going to seem like a vapor of time we've been here. And I've seen people spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on tile. And they build this nice house. This is no joke. There was a guy up in Big Bear, a wealthy guy. And he wanted every single brick he put down as the floor in his cabin to tune to the note of E. No joke. And one of the contractors was telling me, it took them a couple of years just to bing and get it. And to to do it, it, it's crazy. But I I guarantee you, there's some other guy walking on those letter, you know, note E things, has no idea. That's what happens. They walk on these hundred thousands of dollars tile, and nobody notices it anymore. First time they walk in, whoa, these are amazing. These are beautiful. And then within a week, they don't even notice it anymore. This world, you cannot get an eternal grasp on this world. We have to wait patiently for the Lord's return or to leave this body to go be with the Lord. Listen to Hebrews 11, verse 13 to 16. These all died in faith. All the men of God throughout history having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in this earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have an opportunity to return like Demas did. He did return, didn't he? These guys could have at any point said, I'm done with the battle. I'm done fighting my flesh. I'm done fighting the devil. I'm done fighting the world. I'm just going to go back and, and live the way I did. in back in Egypt or back in the Ur of the Chaldees or wherever they came from, they could have backslidden, returned at any point in time. Demas did, but they didn't. He says in Hebrews 11:16, 16, But now they desire a better. That is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. Isn't that great? So Demas no longer wanted the tension of the battle. He no longer wanted the tension of fighting so many things. My flesh, the world, the devil. Man, I'm, I, everything is, is sold under the evil one. Everything is in this, as Peter describes it, that God would deliver us from this present evil age we are we are pilgrims here we're strangers here everybody else seems to be so comfortable with all the things going on uh, you got now the transgender stuff and i don't know if you heard in minnesota they they're passing laws so hopefully this next generation what 10 percent, 50 percent of kids will say yes i was born a girl but i'm going to be a guy all the guys say, I was born a guy, but I'm gonna be a girl. I'm gonna take medication, I'm gonna get operations because this is such a wonderful thing that we're able to now grow up and say, honey, you're not a male or a female. You gotta decide that yourself. And then you see everybody celebrating this 13-year-old kid at school, and and he now belongs, you know, kids in junior high high school, that's Number one thing, I need to find a click. I need to find a place, where I'm a part of the gang, wherever that is. And and now I can be a part of this transgendered group or this homosexual group or this, whatever it is. Imagine, they are truly living in some I'm Gamora. It's it's astounding, what a battle, and just to say there's no more battle. I no longer have the, the pressure to, to, to follow the guidelines of the Bible, the boundaries God has set, the beautiful things. When God said he made male and female, he said it was very good. Not like the rest of the creation where he said it's good. He said male and female, it was very good. But now, if there is no God in the picture, God didn't make anybody. Evolution <laughs> made people by perchance. There is no purpose. There is no God given design for our earth, which is crazy because the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen in the visible creation. And it's incredible and it's incredible, intricate to see. Boy, it's a battle. My grandkids, I I look at them and go, "I, I fought a battle that my parents didn't have to fight. My parents had a battle that their parents didn't have to fight. But boy, You have been born into this last generation. And Lot's children didn't fare very well. He lost them all to the perverted mindset of Sodom and Gomorrah. Two of the daughters wouldn't leave with him. They stayed and died in Sodom and Gomorrah. And the two daughters that were with him were completely perverts, getting their own dad drunk and having sex with their own dad, literally molesting their dad after they got him intoxicated so they could have a baby that it didn't, it didn't matter to them if it was their own dad who got them pregnant. That's, what, what are you, some prude? You think that's immorally wrong? Ah, I can't stand people like that. They had no problem molesting their own dad. Crazy. This is the world we're in. But let's remember the teaching and the warning of elderly apostle John. In 1 John 2, verse 15 to 17, do not love the world or the things in the world. Wow, I wonder if he was thinking about Demas here who loved this present world. I wonder if John knew Demas or other guys like Demas and he says, yep, they love this present world, but you do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is what? Not In him, For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not of the Father, it's of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Paul says something similar in Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, right? Don't let it happen. And yes, it's a daily fight. I mean, I would love to just take off my armor, take off my helmet, take off this heavy stuff, set down my sword, and, and just go walking in the park and say, ah, oh, I'm at peace. There's no more battle. I love this. You know what happened happen if you did that? The devil would leave you alone. Matter of fact, he'd probably start blessing you. He would give you a better job and give you a windfall of money and bring people into your life at least for the immediate to make it look like you're you're now under the heavy black yoke of christianity and now you're able to see that everybody's good and everybody if there is a god god loves everybody equally we're all going to heaven everybody the brotherhood of all believers everybody's good and everybody's going to heaven it's interesting as we look at first john and all that he says to Christians and to people that are struggling in the world. And right after this, he writes the book of Revelation. But he ends First John with this very obscure, out-of-context thing. It's like, what, what did this old man just have a brain fart and scribbled some bizarre sentence, and that's the end of it? I mean, it just doesn't flow. It doesn't work. And, and so we know it's the word of God. This is a prophecy of the Lord where it's not in context. It doesn't, the verses before this last verse of 1 John doesn't flow. It's like, oh yeah, that, that, that follows, that follows. Oh, that, fo-. no. Completely like he's starting a completely new thought. He just ends the book saying this in 1 John 5, 21, little children, keep yourself from idols. Amen. Little children, Christians. Christians, worshiping, idols. That's one way to start backsliding, isn't it? To Start loving the things of the world and then to idolizing those things of the world. And then to be able to get some of those things within your grasp because finances have changed. I, I've seen it in the years where even people in their middle ages, 45, 50 will finally financially get to a place they can really start getting comfortable. The kids are gone, and and they start getting more and more money and more and more access to do things. And it's wonderful, and that's good, but it's also a new trial. And can they now, with this amount of income, remain on fire for the Lord? And so many of them, I just see that change. Those who used to... Go to church every week or now going five times a year. Those who once served body through Sunday school or whatever, they, they've ceased from that. And, and, and there's just a whole nother different Christianity that they're following than they did before. Well, in that book of Revelation, Jesus... John's John's just the writer. Jesus is the one. This isn't John writing this book. He's documented. He's the scribe for Jesus. That's why we call it Revelation singular. You know, the book of Revelations, plural, is not a bunch of prophecies. There's one revelation. It's Jesus. And that's the point. It's Jesus. I'm going to give you a revelation of Jesus. And Jesus... There he writes to the seven churches, as you know. The first church he writes to is Ephesus. And we know this story, don't we? They lost their first love. In Revelation 2, 4 through 5, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come quickly and remove the lampstand from its place unless you repent. Well, you can go today to where the church of Ephesus once stood. And it's rubble, and there are no Christian churches there. In Turkey, the church is folded. Remember, therefore, from when you've fallen, repent. And then the third thing, do the first works or repeat. Go back and remember, okay, you've backslidden, you used, so just ask yourself the question. We talk about backsliding, it could be, man, a person's in the world like they were before they came to Christ. Or it could be, I went from being 100% fruitful, slid to be 60% fruitful, I'm sliding to be 20% fruitful, and I'm still sliding. And so you're, you're here today, and just maybe, maybe your definition of backsliding is, am I as on fire for the Lord as I have been at some point in my life? When I look over my life, I am more on fire for Jesus right now than I ever have been. That would be a wonderful analysis of yourself. But if you're looking at your Christian walk saying, man, I haven't been on fire really for the Lord for a decade. But back in my 30s or back in my 20s or back when I first came to Christ, man, I, I was I was handing out tracts to everybody. I was going to church. Or I'd read my Bible every day. I couldn't stop. Well, okay, remember what a, how sweet it was? The sweetest of the sweet... I had a, a friend who came to Christ many years ago and he ended up owning grocery stores. And, and he told me, he's just like, when somebody told me about Christ, I, I I knew that nothing can be ever sweeter than this. The sweetest of the sweet. And he talked to, he liked to talk about this fudge. He used to live back east. And these, these uh, Amish people, he'd go to this place and they had this fudge and, and that he's never found anything close to it ever since. And he can't eat fudge because it all tastes horrible compared to what he grew up with. And he, he says, when you've had the sweetest of the sweet, nothing else tastes good enough to eat. He goes, that's what happened to me when I became a Christian. I, I try to, eat the chocolate here, eat the chocolate. No, and now that I have Jesus, he came to Christ in his later years. He's just like, man, it just has, nothing else has taste. I love that hymn. We're gonna sing it this Wednesday night. When the things of earth grow sweetly dim in the light of his glorious face. You guys know that hymn? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And this is it. He's saying, was there a time where you had this fellowship with Christ where he was the sweetest of the sweet and nothing else could even come close to tasting good? Repent. That's it. What's that? It's change of mind. Turn around go the opposite direction and just do it. I don't feel it. I, before I felt it and I did it. Before I felt this desire to read the word and I did it. Before I felt like I wanted to pray for hours and I did it. Now I don't feel it. So I'm, I'm, I've remembered, I'm repenting, and now I'm waiting to fill it again. And he's saying, no, you've got to walk by faith. I love that where Moses had his rod and he touched the Red Sea, it departed, became dry, and then they walked across. But later, when the children of Israel would need to cross the Jordan, and it was at the high season, God said, have the priest put the ark, very, very hundreds of pound heavy thing, and have the priest walk into the Jordan. And as they walked into the Jordan, the waters began to part and turn dry. So, yeah, it was great. When the sand was dry on the Red Sea, we just walked right through. But this time, you've got to do it, and then God will revive your heart, and possibly you'll fill it. Maybe you won't. Part of that... It is a decade of our life where we felt a lot of things big. And we don't feel things as big anymore as we get older. It doesn't matter. I don't need to feel it. It's the truth, and I want to walk in it. And then the last church. We know this, don't we? The Church of Laodicea. Hey, my timer up here says I've been preaching for zero amount of time. I forgot to start it. So I'll start now. (laughs) I won't preach longer than 35 minutes, okay? Um... But the church of Laodicea, we know this one well, don't we? It became lukewarm. He says, I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. I'd rather you be completely cold. Because then maybe your heart would hear the gospel. Or completely hot. There you go. Demas, Demas is just burning hot for Jesus. Like I've never seen him burn before. Boy, that would have been so much better, huh? And he hates this world and the things of it, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the ice, the pride of life. Demas hates it more than he's ever hated it, and he loves God in a way I've never seen a man love God. Wow. Is that what the Bible would say about you if you were in it? And then he says in verse 16 of Revelation 3, So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I would vomit you out of my mouth. Wow. Would you ever have thought Jesus would say such words? Gross. Very offensive. Very in your face. Very rude, harsh. Would you ever thought our sweet Jesus, our shepherd of our souls... Our, bra- our husband to come? Have you ever heard a guy that's going to get married in a few weeks say to his bride to come, uh, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. You'd never hear it, right? But lukewarmness is the backsliding, if you would, where Paul describes it in Second Timothy as having a form of Godliness but with no power, no reality. That's the church here. And then he goes on to say, because I say I'm rich and I become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do you not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined and fire that you may be rich, white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see As many as I love, I rebuke and chase and therefore be zealous and repent. So I'm saying this because I love you, not because I hate you or I'm beating up on you. And then he says this in Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. So I'm not saying this because I don't love you. I love you. That's why I'm saying this. And it's harsh. But here he's talking to the church and he's saying, I'm on the outside. He's not talking to non-Christians, I'm knocking on the door yard, right? although I believe that's true. And I think you can say that. But he's not saying that to non-Christians here. He's talking to people that are Christians that are going to church, that are doing all the things that would make you think they're doing great spiritually. So from man's point of view, oh, the church of Laodicea, man, they, the whole city is really wealthy now. Everybody's financially doing better than they've ever done. And the church, we built a giant steeple with a cross on it, and we, we didn't have to borrow. We paid for it all cash, man. People are giving, and, and uh, the church is doing better than ever before. But Jesus, from his point of view, who doesn't look on the outward man, looks on the heart, says, no, you're not wearing nicer clothes. You're wearing nothing. No, you're not seeing better with those new glasses. You're seeing nothing. And I'm telling you that your analysis of yourself is wrong and very, very wrong. But what am I doing? Am I condemning you? No. Am I hating on you? No. I'm lovingly knocking, pestering, <laughs> annoying you knock, 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 knock. You know, you just want somebody to go away. Sometimes you have those guys that come to sell you something and, and it's like, I don't even want to go to the door and tell them I don't want to, their stuff. That's where the ring comes in. You just push the button. No thanks. Because you're afraid. You open that door, somebody might mug you or something these days. You just never know. But either way, if you got a persistent one, it becomes annoying. Well, Jesus is persistently knocking. Jesus is outside of these believers and because of their pride about their knowledge or spirituality. I don't need, the, the lukewarm heart is saying this, the backslidden lukewarm heart is saying this, I don't need to feed the fire so fervently. I don't need to study the scriptures so consistently. I don't need to have devotions daily. I don't need to go to church regularly because look, I'm really doing great. I'm really moving in my analysis of myself. Well, the next thing we see about Demas is he has departed. An important note, in the last days, we're going to see a lot of departing going on. I think we're already seeing it, don't you? I mean, the, the facts are the facts. And this COVID did a major... The church was already losing... A lot. We're going to talk about this in detail next week. But the church was already losing a lot, the whole next generation. I mean, I'm talking about for the last 20 years, 80% of kids that grow up in the church, only 20% of them will stay. And of that 20%, they won't stay in the church they grow up in. They'll go to another church in town. But only 20%. So the church has been in a bad shape for a very long time, departing. But this is not to be surprised. In 1 Timothy 4.1, the Spirit expressly says, very emphatically, he's jumping up and down and, and being very charismatic in the way he's preaching it, that in the latter days, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. I think we know what those are now, don't we? In 2 Thessalonians 2 3, let no one deceive you by any means, for the day will not come till the falling away. In the Greek, that's the word apostasia, comes first. Until an apostasy, a big part of those who are part of Christendom begin accepting false doctrine. And then the man of sin, the Antichrist, is revealed, that son of perdition. In Hebrews 10, verse 24 to 25, Paul says he saw this during his time happening, but he says in the last days, it's a different um, degree if it happens then. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. So he goes, you know those kind of people. They're with us for a while, maybe a few years, and then they get bored with us. Or, you know, they buy a boat and they need to, they join a club and they need to be out with, on their boat on Sundays or whatever. Or they, you know, take up a new hobby or, or they, they find themselves not motivated at all to get up except on occasions. He goes, it happens. That, it happens. But he says, in the last days, it's a different dimension. Don't forsake together, together yourselves, but exhort one another And so much the more as you see the day approaching. So in the last days, this can be far more detrimental than in other times before the last days. And then John says, once going back to 1 John 2.28, Now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming So he's saying, guys, you don't want to be in that place where you've departed or you're half in and half out. Jude says it this way, keep yourself in the love of God. That's pretty much it, right? Like Joshua said, it's for me and my house. If you think it's evil serving the Lord, you think it's evil to put pressure on yourself to read the Bible every day or to go to church, you feel like you have to beat your body in subjection to, to obey God, if that seems wrong to you, in other words, Christianity should be more like a walk in the park, not a battlefield. If, if, it, if it seems evil to you, Joshua said, to serve the Lord the way he's called us to serve him, then that's on you. I can't help you. I can't help you. It's, it's me. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. I have found that to be true, that you really want to grab your spouse and drag them up the hill. You can't. Walking as a Christian is like trying to climb the side of a mountain that's sandy. <laughs> and you're, you can make a few inches at a time, but you've got to keep scratching going up. And you, you grab one person, whew, you, you can't do it. Though none go with me, yet I will follow. There comes that place where you say, it's for me. I am going to follow the Lord. Keep yourself in the love of God. And then he says, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life boy, I'm waiting anxiously. It's getting harder and harder to watch people who are believing these demonic lies of these last days. It's, you know, looking at the lots of this world who are the righteous souls vexed every day. My righteous souls vexed every day. Have mercy on some and others doubting, he says. In verse 23 of Jude, save others, snatch them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear hating even the garments polluted from the flesh. So the picture there is as you're being raptured, you grab this carnal Christian and grab him, and you're being changed into the image of Christ, and and he is too, but his dirty garments are still on him. You know, the garments that are smelling with the drugs or the illicit sex or whatever it is, they smell of his sin. I just want to make a quick note here. I do not believe that a believer can lose their salvation. Those who believe in him, he says first, shall never perish, but have everlasting life. In John 6, 39 and 40, it says, this is the will of the father who sent me, that all he has given me, I should lose nothing and should raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And John 10, 28, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. So it's like a prodigal son. A back Demas, I do not believe he lost his salvation. He's like the prodigal son. But again, Jesus says you're going to want to have treasure in heaven. And of course, we, we want to finish the work that God's given us to do we want to look to the love of Christ and finish that work well the third thing is he has forsaken me Jesus I guess had his Judas and Paul had his Demas so we understand that that we are a part of the whole body of Christ it it may I understand that, that you individually don't make up the body of Christ. You're a hand, you're an arm, you're an eye, you're an ear. But when that ear is gone or that hand or that arm is gone, it hurts, doesn't it? In 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one member suffers, all the members suffer. If one member is honored, then all the members rejoice. And then he also says... Um, Well, that, I was going to say, it's interesting that right before it talks about Luke and Demas, he gives us this long couple of verses on Epaphras. And do you remember what Epaphras prayed for? I wonder wonder if Epaphras, Paul was thinking about Epaphras and how he prayed for people, and then he thought of Demas. In Colossians 4.12, Epaphras, remember this from last week? He's always laboring fervently for you in his prayers. For what? One, that you may stand. Demas wasn't standing, was he? Number two, that you would be perfect and complete. He wasn't finishing the race in that way, was he? And third, in all the will of God. Boy, Epaphras really prayed that perfect prayer, didn't he? Well, what is the answer to backsliding? First, we all know it, simply abide. Jesus said, come to me, all you labor and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you're in a backslidden place right now today, it's not about starting to create a legalistic, you know, I'm going to go home and throw my TV away and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to whatever, you know, get on my knees for four hours every afternoon and, and pray. You don't need to start doing something legalistic. You're a sheep that jumped over the fence and you're long ways away and you almost got ate by the wolves and you're running back. Just keep running into the arms of Jesus. Just curl up in Jesus' arms. He's not trying to load you down. He's not trying to wipe you out. His burden is easy and light. What has he called us to do? Just to walk by faith and and follow him, abide in him. You guys know John 15. Abide in me, Jesus said, and I in you. The vine can't bear fruit of itself. And the, the, the branches can't bear fruit of itself. It's got to abide in the vine. And the vine causes the branches to be fruitful. And he says, that's the way you need to think of it. I abide in you. You abide in me. And if you will abide in me, you will pray. You'll start praying. I need to pray more. You know what? Just abide in Jesus. You'll pray more. Meditate on the word day and night. You'll pray more. And then he goes on to say, this is how you will prove yourself to be the disciple by bearing much fruit. Secondly, it's building up your faith. In Romans 10, it says, through the word of God, we build up our faith. David says in Psalm 119, 11, your word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. And then again in Jude, it says, building up yourself in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. The third thing is keeping yourself unstained by the world. I love that where James says, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit orphans. And widows in their trouble. And the third thing is, keep yourself, keep oneself unstained or unspotted from the world. I love Peter. He, he nails it. In 1 Peter 1, verse 13 through 19. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming to yourself in the former lust as in your ignorance. There it is again. Not being conformed as you, a lifestyle that you lived before you came to Christ. For he who called you is holy. You also be holy in your conduct. Because it's written, be holy for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear. We're walking in a battle. We're walking through a landmine. We need to be aware that our flesh is screaming to have its way. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold or aimless conduct received by the traditions of our fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Really, it's just the love of Christ that should should constrain us, right? It's to realize how much God loves us and it just drops us to our knees and to say, God, I want to love you as you love me. 1 Corinthians 6 makes it clear we're not our own. The Holy Spirit lives in us. That God has purchased us with his blood. He's purchased us. We're no longer our own. In our body and in our spirit both, we are God's. I love Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as my presence only, but now much more in my absence. When you're by yourself, is who you really are, right? When nobody's around, that's who you really are. He says, work out your own salvation with what? Fear and trembling, the same thing. Not work for your salvation. Salvation's a gift, but in the state of being saved, Work out with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you both the will and to do of his good pleasure. Thank God for that. Give me the will in this, Lord, and then give me the power by his spirit to obey you. In First Thessalonians 4, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Each of you should abstain from sexual immorality. Each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. For God has not called us to uncleanness, but what? In holiness. One more verse on this in Hebrews 13, 11 through 14. And do this, knowing the time, now is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in rivalry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to fill its lust. I'm so thankful that Paul, living in these last days, you know, we're going to see, as we talk in prophecy, there's going to be a revival of the Roman Empire. And the revival, the Roman Empire is full of, all kinds of weird sexuality, bizarre. I think it's what eventually destroyed itself and imploded on all its immorality. And Paul's in the middle of this. And he's like, man, it feels like these are the last days. I think it might be the last day. I'm glad that he felt that way because he wrote to the last days church, whoever that might be. And he says, when you're in that time, like Lot being in Sodom and Gomorrah, like Noah being in his day when God told him to make the ark, when you realize you're in a wicked and perverse generation, like Noah says, their hearts were evil continually. When you're in the midst of such a generation, whether it's the last generation or not, he says you've got to live differently than Christians and other generations. You know, I, I, I think about the Christianities in the 1920s. I think about all the Christians. I, I grew up in a small town in Central California, Everybody went to church Sunday morning. There was nothing open. There were no stores, gas stations. Nothing was open on Sunday. It was a ghost town. Everybody was at church on Sunday morning. You drive out your driveway, and everybody's pulling out of their driveways. There was no divorce. It just... It was so seldom, if somebody was divorced, they would never let anybody know because it just did not happen. The idea of, of such wicked things that are being taught in the schools today, militantly being taught back then, it was an easier time. It was a very sweet time to be a Christian back in the 60s that I grew up in that, that Christian community Every when you went out to play with all the kids, you know, nobody cussed. And if they did, somebody'd go tell their mom and they'd get in trouble. Everybody had a sense of a Christian morality. I'm seeing a lot of you guys shaking your heads, going, ah, Lord, I would long for those days. Take me Jesus right now. Oh man. But we when we are in these last days, when we find ourselves as a Noah, we find ourselves as a lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. We need to wake up out of our sleep and to realize our culture is not Christian anymore. Matter of fact, being a Christian is a negative now. I I won't get promoted in the school system. I may get fired if I stand for Christ in the school system. I may not be liked at all if I let people know at college that I'm even a Christian. I better not wear that Christian shirt that I had from the volleyball team I better not let people know that I have a Bible in my room I better hide it like contraband yeah we we are in that generation he says when that generation you are in it wake up wake up because we need to cast off the works of darkness we've slowly been living like the world we've been solely compromised by the world We need to get back on the armor of God. We need to walk properly as in the day, put on the armor of light, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provisions for the flesh to fulfill the lust. Well, the fourth thing here is understanding that the Christian life is a fight to the end, never a walk in the park. This is not heaven. Well, if God loved me, I'd get that new car. If God loved me, I'd get that nicer house. If God loved me, You know, I would have a beach, I'd have a beach house in Malibu. Guys, the earth is the Lord's and all that's in it. And you are his children who inherit all things. Yeah, but I've never got to go to Switzerland and ski. You know what? In the millennial reign, which is coming, there's going to be a thousand year millennial reign. You will be in a brand new body. Why don't you go skiing for a hundred years? And you got nine hundred years left. Well, I've never got to go scuba diving in the Bahamas. Do that the next hundred years. You got eight hundred years left. Well, I want a house on the Bahamas. house on the Bahamas? You got the whole the whole Malibu is yours. Take it all. Do you understand? Whatever we're sacrificing, whatever we're losing, whatever isn't, whatever pleasures we're denying ourselves in this life, because it might cause us to be tied into the wickedness of this world. We're going to get back a hundredfold in the life to come. And then after that, everything's going to melt with a fervent heat. There'll be a new heavens and a new what? Earth. We are going to live forever, but on a brand new earth that has no demonic touch of the Satan whatsoever. As well as heaven, we'll be able to live in both. And so, yeah, God's not being mean to us because we're in a battle. The moment you become a Christian, you are in the battle. Okay? I'm sorry. But that's what you're signing up for. I know I, I, I love Ray Comfort on this. He says that people have taught, oh, come to Christ and y- y- you'll lose weight. <laughs> come to Christ and your marriage will be better. Come to Christ and you'll be happier. Come to Christ and you'll make more money. Come to- and-, and, the- and so come to Christ. And then they come to Christ. Now, in most of the world, I'm seeing testimonies all the time. You're in Iran and you come to Christ, your whole family may cut you off. They may even kill you. You come to Christ in China, you're in trouble. You come to Christ in a Jewish community, they will cast you out. No, for coming to Christ, for a lot of people, literally cost them their life, if not their livelihood, if not their family. Coming to Christ did not make their life better. It only made it worse on this earth. Okay? So, no. He, he says it's, it's like if you're on a plane and the, and the, 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 the captain said, hey, we just lost engines. The plane's going down. Um, everybody put on a parachute. And the stewardess comes through and says, hey, put on a parachute. It'll make your life happier. It'll make you feel warm and comfy. It'll make you, and you put this thing on, and you, you, your face is slammed up against the seat in front of you, and it hurts your back. It's too heavy, and I can't eat my food now. I can't even get into in my backpack. And, and you tell the stewardess, get this thing off of me. It didn't do any of the things you said. But if she hands you the backpack and says it's heavy, it's going to hurt, it's going to be uncomfortable, but in a minute, you're going to have to jump out that door. You better have it on or you'll die. That's Christianity. We deny ourselves, take a cross, and follow Christ. We lose our life in this world when we become a Christian. The moment we become a Christian, we enter the battle Jesus said, before you can follow me, you first got to take up the cross and follow me. Jesus said, it's a narrow way that leads to life, but a broad road that leads to destruction. Enter by the narrow gate. And of course, we know the house built on the sand versus the rock, right? Those who hear God's word and do it, build their house on the rock. Paul says, I discipline my body. I bring it into subjection. Lest after I preach to others, I become disqualified. Paul says in Galatians 5, 24 and 25, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you live in the spirit, walk in the spirit. So God's spirit's in you. You got to walk. How do you walk? You got to crucify your flesh with all its passions and desires. There is no crossless Christianity. There is no Christian who's friends with the world and friends with the church, friends with the devil and friends with God. Light and darkness can't come together. You got to choose the light or the darkness. Of course, the darkness you already have chosen. So, an important note, I just wanted to say there, there's no condemnation in Christ. God's not condemning anybody backslidden. Do you remember the prodigal son's dad? Every day he was out looking. To see, if today's the day has come, his son's coming home. He did that for days, weeks, years. And then when he saw that shadowy silhouette, he recognized it. And he ran. The only time we ever see God running in a hurry in the entire Bible is here. in this analogy where it is God running to the prodigal son, gives him a coat, gives him the ring, gives him his sandals, and rejoices and throws a party. There's no condemnation coming from God. He's for us. Never against us. He's given all things. His only begotten son to get you. He's not going to reject you now. Life is real, isn't it? Shakespeare said this. Life seems like a play. The difference is real blood is spilt on the stage. This is real, right? Life is real. When you're at a funeral, you realize life is real. Paul says in Romans 8, 5, and 6, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, for to be carnally minded is what? Death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Galatians 5, 16, and 17, walk in the Spirit you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another. They're a battle with one another. You do not do what you wish. Interesting. Whatever is the strongest is going to win. If you have a life full of the word and prayer and fellowship and you're getting built up in, in Christ and you're close together with the other sheep huddling together. If your campfire is going out, what do you do? You, you get all these little sticks and get all the embers and you get them all together. If You got an ember by itself. It's going to go out. Get that ember into the fire pit there and it'll get going again. In the same way, we don't do as we wish. We do what we're the, what's the stronger. Is it the flesh? If you walk in the flesh, you're going to have a spirit that's grieved. But if you walk in the spirit, you're going to have the joy and the peace of Christ in your life. So we're going to end on this, what we've learned. Let's all of us be prayer warriors like Paul and Epaphras, even though that was last week's message. I mentioned it today. Secondly, let us be faithful to the end, like Luke. Only three things said about him. But the third thing was, he was the only one went to the end. Let us not grow weary and walk away like Demas. We're all weary. We all hate the battle. We don't want to be in a war. We want to be in a place there is no devil and the world system is God's system. We don't want to keep fighting, but until we come to the end, we can't set down the cross. We can't take off the armor. We can't grow weary until the end. And then let's strengthen ourselves in the Lord. And let's have a walk in the Spirit. Amen. Lord, as we contrast today Luke and Demas, it took a while here. But Lord, we trust that you would speak what it is that you have to speak into our hearts. We thank you there's no condemnation. We thank you there. You're looking down the street for us to come running into your arms. We thank you that your yoke is easy and your burden is light and that we are to come back to you finding a rest for our souls. No legalism, no striving, no trying to do it on our own strength, but in the Spirit, by the power of your Spirit, that we would beat our bodies into subjection. By the power and by the uh, love for you, we would crucify our flesh with its passions and desires that we can please you that we can bear good fruit, much good fruit, and thus prove to be a disciple of the Father. Lord, search our hearts right now. See if there be any wicked way in us. Lord, is there backsliding in me? Lord, is there a worry in these last days that are going to be far more critical than any other time, far more dark, with more doctrine of demons than any other time in history? that I would become one that's lukewarm and then one who would depart, one who was near you, but then one who just said, I I just, I'm going to take it easy and retire. I'm not going to keep fighting the good fight. Lord, help us now. If there's any who have grown weary, strengthen their hands right now. Give them strength to their feeble knees before they get dislocated there's any right now who have been fighting this fight for decades, there's many here that are in their 80s who just say now in their 80s, I, I'm done. We've been learning in Exodus that Moses was 80 and Aaron was 83. You make a point of that to say the battle's not done. Doesn't matter how old you are. There's a new ministry to begin. Lord, do that new ministry in us and through us and with us. Your kingdom come, Lord. Your will be done, Lord. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen.